Hello, and thank you for joining me today for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and big ideas that never quite get represented this way in standard academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University. I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Devlin. Dr. Devlin is professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and also past president of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. Devlin has extensive experience across a range of eating disorders research and treatment, and especially the area of binge eating disorder. We're delighted to have you join us today, Mike. Thanks, Kathy. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks for being here. Let's start at the beginning with just growing up years. And when was it that you came to imagine that you would become a psychiatrist? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, you know, I was always interested in, uh, in the mind and the brain, I think. Uh, it's interesting that where I went, this small Catholic high school that I attended, we had to write a term paper on any topic in the world. And I chose behavior therapy. And so it was just out of... Out of and out how of old were you at that universe. point? I was like 17, something like that. Uh -huh. and I just thought that was like the most interesting thing to learn about. So I did. Um, and then it's funny that I ended up in psychiatry because I wasn't really planning on that at that stage. And then even more unexpectedly, um, that CBT ended up being something that I was uh, kind of drawn to and ended up, you know, teaching and supervising. So it's just funny how that worked mm -hmm. out. My dad uh, was not a psychiatrist, but he worked here at the medical center where I still work. And he worked in the Department of Psychiatry as an administrator. But, you know, it, because of that, I heard a lot about psychiatry and psychiatrists at the dinner table. Um, and certainly my family had a lot of respect for psychiatry. So I, I have to think that maybe that played a part in it too. But um, you know, the great thing with med school is that you get to try everything and pick what you like the best. <laughs> Psychiatry uh -huh. was just the most interesting and rewarding for me. So when you were in med school and then doing your rotations, where did you first get exposed to psychiatry? Uh, we had a little bit of um, kind of classroom-ish psychiatry in the first two years, but the first practical experience was... Uh, in my third year rotation, which as I recall, was mostly doing sort of outpatient work and evaluations and, and that sort of thing and, um, and getting supervision on those and really um, getting excited. And then, uh, and then I did an inpatient rotation on this unit called Neuro 12, which was mm -hmm. run by uh, Stuart Yudowski and Eric Marcus, names mm -hmm. you might remember. Um, and that was this really wonderful um, Kind of multidisciplinary, super collaborative, um, you know, multimodal, but with a very strong psychotherapy component, um, and that really sold me. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So you did your medical school training and residency at Columbia. Yeah, I got away for one year. At, at that time, you would typically do a year of medicine and then start psychiatry and PGY two. So uh -huh. I did my year of medicine at Lenox Hill Hospital, all the way to the east side. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> On the other side of the park. Yeah. So, so you've been at Columbia for a long stretch. Mm -hmm. Over this time, what observations have you 
had about behavioral health, about healthcare generally that have informed your practice? I mean, I feel like behavioral health is much more sort of in the in the mainstream. There was always, a, when I was going to medical school and training a little bit of a sense of like, if you went into psychiatry, how come you didn't become a real doctor? You know, and that, I think it's kind of all but disappeared. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of interest almost every year among our medical students in psychiatry. Um, and, you know, because psychiatry really ha- has become has advanced so much in terms of how, how we understand, um, even though we still have such a long way to go, you know, and we're still in sort of fundamentally the same nosology, um, even though there's lots of, you know, ideas for alternative nosologies and more mechanistic based nosologies, but we're, you know, it's a work in progress, it's a work in progress, but I think it really has evolved quite a bit. And the integration of behavioral health of psychiatry across other areas of specialization seems to me to have expanded dramatically. Very much so. Yep. Yeah. So it's, as you said, this made the comment that, um, why didn't you become a real doctor? You know, if you became a psychiatrist, I, at, when you said it, I remember that, but it, it does feel like that's something, a blast from the past. Yeah, it is. I think happily, yeah. you know, um, yeah. Because that was really, I mean, that actually sort of gets into the whole, um, my, the big idea of kind of how we talk about things is how Mm -hmm. we think ends up, um, you know, influencing so much how we think about things. Because, you know, when that was kind of the the prevailing ideology that somehow psychiatry was like off on the side, it -hmm. really, I think it's very limiting, you know, and as we've moved away from that, it really opens up a lot of vistas. You said it was a unit that really was generative in terms of ideas and embraced a model of integration around science and practice and um, teaching. So was that unusual? Was that not the case on other, in other areas, or was it just especially pronounced in the, in, on this unit? I think what, I mean, it was very pronounced on this unit. One thing that was, um, very special about this unit was the interprofessional and interprofessional education is something that I've been very involved in, in my more recent career, but where there was really a respect for like rounds where, you know, the nurses and the social workers and the therapy aides and really everybody was on a level play. And in many ways, what the therapy aides had to say was taken, like that was the most, the the sense was that they had really the most valuable information because they were really out there with the patients and making really. And so that really encouraged folks to be really thoughtful in terms of their observations. The people were, were so valued um, mm-hmm. and everybody kind of knew each other. And, and, you know, there was like the big cookout with that everybody went to. So that it really was um, one of the best models of interprofessional care that I've ever been uh, involved with. And that was, you know, well, I don't know how many years, <laughs> a yeah. lot of a, a lot, lot of years, years ago, ago, right? Like 40 something years ago, I think. Yeah. So the push today for interprofessional care and teams and cross-functional teams is uh, new and old at the same time. It really is. And I think, you know, at the time that it was much more, particularly coming from the MDs, much more transactional, like we need this from the social worker, we need that from the nurse. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's still a lot of that, you know, I, I think. I think we're pushing forward 
but it's really through, um, you know, embracing into professional education, like not like right, right now we have, you know, the, all of the health sciences students are involved in professional education, some more than others with the idea that you need to like grow up understanding who these other people are and what they're contributing and valuing them as really equal members. You know, medicine is, is notoriously hierarchical and that's, mm-hmm. that's so problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're on neuro 12. It's not an eating disorders unit. Uh, so how did you get to eating disorders? How did I get to eating disorders. Um, so I did my year of medicine uh, and I was very happy to have done that, but also to be done with it. And then I landed on July 1st of 1983 on the old PI seven um, where the attendings were Steve Roos and Tim Walsh and um, got to work with that patient population, got to work with Tim and um, just thought, wow, this is so interesting that these folks that are kind of medically interesting and genetically interesting and the family stuff is interesting and the, um, the psychotherapy is interesting and the pharmacotherapy to some degree was like beginning to be mm-hmm. looked into. And it just felt like, and I, there was something about behavioral disorders of mm-hmm. like the mind, you know, kind of in conflict with itself in that very concrete way, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether it's something that's the person is clearly like sort of not wanting to do like binging and purging or something that they're so ambivalent about like restricting. Um, it just was so interesting to kind of, try to understand and help with that. Mm-hmm. And early in the field, 1983, yeah. we're early on and really uh, just beginning to recognize bulimia nervosa. It was with a new DSM. thing at that time and binge eating disorder was years away. Right. Yeah. So it was a new field essentially. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. the, the excitement and the energy and the intellectual and professional heart of trying to figure this out, as you say, and, and, and contribute to understanding must've been really exciting. It really was. Yeah. 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 I feel lucky in some ways to have come along when I did, though. I think probably anybody could say the same because it's, it's always exciting. Yeah. Any more opportunities for people who are just starting out now. Um, yeah. There's so much more, you know, understood. There's so much more, there's so many more ways that one can study uh, people with eating disorders. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. As you started your work on the inpatient unit with Dr. Walsh, who yeah. was your mentor and mine and began in the, on a clinical research unit, that that's also a really interesting thing about the the service that you were on because it was a a place where research and clinical care intimately linked. What, how did you get started? Was there a particular study that you started with or a particular program? I don't think that I did. I got so involved um, in research when I was a PGY2. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't really happen until probably when I was a PGY four and kind of deciding that I was going to do the T thirty two research fellowship uh-huh. um, with Tim, and then I also did, I did half with Tim and half in developmental psychobiology with Myron Hofer and that group, uh, and then really you know initially got involved with um, 
So, so Tim was like not that many years away from when he was a fellow and he had done a lot of work in endocrinology of um, people with eating disorders and had a lot of data that he had never really had the opportunity to. And so of course, like for a, a resident or a new fellow, that's ideal to have like a, a nice data set that you can jump into. So that was some of my early work was following up on that, doing a lib review on the, you know, neuroendocrinology of, uh, of I think anorexia in particular, but maybe eating disorders in general. And, um, and then analyzing some of Tim's hormonal data on the hypothalamic pituitary uh, ovarian axis mm-hmm. um, and got a, you know, a nice paper out of that. And uh-huh. then, um, you know, at that initially Tim was most involved in medication studies. So helping out with some of those, getting a little bit interested in kind of comorbidity with depression. And then a big kind of shift came uh, when Tim, in the course of his work on DSM-4, met Terry Wilson, who uh, was doing CPT. And then Tim and Terry decided, wouldn't it be interesting to do a study that involved both medication and CBT? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question came up, who was going to be the therapist? And um, I raised my hand and said, I'd love to be trained in CBT. And right. so that happened. Um, right. And then I joined you. And then you joined. Yeah. <laughs> and what a great chapter that was. Yeah. So the work that you were doing in this in those years focused on clinical trials um cbt cbt and medication we worked around bulimia of with a focus on bulimia nervosa then anorexia nervosa and then you started leading some work on binge eating disorder yeah so tell us how that emerged that's interesting and that um again, it sort of gets into the big idea a little bit, was that, there, you know, we were getting a lot of calls um, from folks who had a problem with uncontrolled eating, like very clearly, you know, and, and would have met criteria for bulimia nervosa, except they didn't do anything to compensate either purging or non-purging. And, um, you know, we asked that question that I think we ask all too rarely, which is like, are we missing something yeah. here? You know, because that, that's always a good question because the answer is always yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we were, and then, um, you know, had the great good fortune to hook up with Bob Spitzer, who himself was also thinking, I think independent of us, as he was starting to think about how psychiatric nosology was looking forward and was looking for like things that really ought to be codified as diagnoses, but hadn't been yet. He, mm-hmm. you know, he really, um, leapt into binge eating as at least to his, and, you know, he's a guy who's thought a lot about this. So that, that carried a lot of weight that Bob thought um, that this was something that was worthy of attention and that might, you know, might be a real thing. And so Bob in his Bob-like um, way reached out to, uh, you know, so many eating disorder people and then also folks in the obesity world who up to that point had almost never met one another for the, to, you know, to a large degree. And um, it also just got a lot of like people um, he had, uh, an associate at that time, uh, who, who themselves had some experience with, um, binge eating and had a, a real kind of first person lived experience interest in this. And so they helped out a lot. Um, and just like getting people in who wanted to talk about this and wanted to talk about their experience and, and, mm-hmm. and help in any way, cause they felt like finally somebody's noticing, you know, and not just somebody, but bus bits are, um, right. 
you know, who's in a position to do something about it. Right. Uh, and it was, you know, it really started to, to, to take off and come together. So Bob Spitzer was really a leading force around diagnosis, around classification, leading the DSM-3 and 3R. He now is working more broadly across disorders um, as a scientist saying, what have we missed? What do we need to add when we think about bringing the or evolving the nosology for DSM-4 and brought all these people together around this phenomenon of binge eating Mm -hmm. and any particular meetings that you remember from that time, any particular decision points that were critical? Great question. Um, You know, there was the, uh, the gradual development of what um, ended up becoming the QEWP that Suyanovsky took the lead on. And she was certainly like one of the core early people in this mm-hmm. whole effort. Um, but that was something that just evolved, you know, it started small and just kind of evolved over mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, I just remember like a lot of meetings with folks from, um, you know, some of the local uh, OA chapters who just wanted to come up and like hang out in Bill's office and uh, in, Bob, in yeah. Bob's office and, um, you know, talk about what they, what they were experiencing. Right. Um, so and- in an interesting way, what you're describing is a practice where people with lived experience really contributed meaningfully yeah, really in terms yeah, of absolutely. understanding what this phenomenon was. Mm-hmm. So in that work, uh, eventually binge eating becomes binge eating disorder or, yeah. or you know, real, uh, when binge eating passes a certain threshold and becomes and meets a range of criteria, it becomes binge eating disorder. And, and it matters that it goes from binge eating to binge eating disorder. Right. Right. And so I wonder, that makes me think that we should move into this idea of yours that really is about, it matters how the language we use matters. Yeah, that's a big idea. It's a very big idea. And it's obviously not original to me. Many people have, you know, thought this and written about it, but it, it certainly has been an idea that has echoed throughout my career. So that's why I picked it that, that, you know, how we talk about things really influences how we think about them. And, and the second part to that is that, and, and we sort of are not even aware sometimes to the degree to which that is happening. So once we've decided on a way of talking about something, um, we really go down a certain road in terms of how we think about it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, back when binge eating was binge eating, uh, it was, there was, a, I think, a lot of um, thought about um, almost a kind of moralistic thinking about it, that this was a, a sort of a weakness. This is people not exerting control where they should be. There was also a, a sense, I remember a lot, I had the opportunity to, to sit in on the DSM-4 um, meetings and um, the people thinking like, oh yeah, like sometimes I will have the whole pint of Ben and Jerry's and I didn't mean to, so do I have binge eating disorder? Like people kind of poo-pooed it, you know, initially because it wasn't really thought of as, you know, it's not really an illness. This is just like some kind of 
bad habit, weakness kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when it became clear, it's like, no, this is not somebody who occasionally eats a pint of Ben and Jerry's. This is something. And, th- and we got that through the lived experience. Like it was, you know, people saying like, I've had problems with alcohol. I've had problems with cocaine. This is worse. You know, like this is a really big thing. And, it, and, and, it's a, and it's something that infuses every aspect of the person's life, you know, often on a daily, pretty much always on a daily basis in one way or another, whether or not they're binging on a particular day, that it became clear, well, no, this is, this is an illness. It's much more, you know, like um, bulimia or even anorexia than it is like some occasional thing that you do that you shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that really uh, made life a lot better for people with binge eating disorder in terms of being able to be taken seriously, not be blamed, be offered treatment. Um, I mean, it didn't magically solve everything. And, but it at least, um, you know, and then of course there were other factors, not just in terms of how we think about it, but how we reimburse treatment and all that sort of thing that, that come about. But I think a big part of it is also simply how, how the world thinks about it and sees it. Mm-hmm. And so the act of naming something yeah. shapes, as you're saying, how we think about it, then what we do about it. And it also impacts how we feel about it. And certainly in the case of binge eating disorder, one of the things that's complicated or that I can say it, or I guess I should really ask it as a question. Let me ask the question that with binge eating disorder, it seems to me that one of the challenges is this intersection in the among the the group of people who seek treatment for binge eating disorder, they are often also at a higher body mass, a higher weight status, Mm -hmm. right? So you have the condition of a behavioral disorder and this physical condition. And what does that mean in terms of naming something? And how has that made it, how does that contribute to this idea of naming something and the complexities around that. So that gets into the uh, kind of a whole other area that I, that I wanted to get into, um, you know, which it, which is obesity and obesity treatment and, and what that means. And really what that was sparked by was, you know, what, what has seemed to be kind of a polarization between the health at every size movement and the kind of, you know, obesity is a medical condition that needs to be treated movement and, you know, trying to understand how names um, matter there and how, you know, how naming something as a disorder or providing treatment for it can actually uh, affect how we think about it and, and, and have an impact on people who have it. So I just need to take a little um, sidestep now into my own personal story um, which is kind of, I think, what got me thinking about this is that um, growing up as a gay person, a gay man, um, you know, at the time that I was growing up, there was reparative therapy, um, which is sort of something like that term right there, reparative means like you need to be repaired, i.e. you're broken, um, which is not something that feels very good to mm-hmm. a person. Um, and, you know, and, you know, at the time, actually, uh, homosexuality was defined as a psychiatric disorder, and that also changed um, mm-hmm. part through, again, Bob Spitzer comes into that story as well. You know, it occurred to me that that's 
something that's core to my identity and, the, and somebody else is saying, well, we have treatment for that. Um, that's, that feels hurtful to me. So uh, obesity, you know, while medical people may think of it as kind of adiposity or they may think of it as certain sort of, sorts of metabolic features or metabolic risks, you know, in common parlance, obesity means your body, right? Obesity means you have a, a body that looks kind of large and round or whatever, it, or you have certain, your face looks a certain way, your body looks a certain way. That's what obesity means, I think, in popular language. And so to then say, like, we have treatment for that is tantamount to saying, like, your body is not right. You know, it needs to be the focus of treatment. And certainly that message has gotten through, right? Like, just talk to I mean, so many people who I've, or the people who I've talked to over the years um, lived, have lived that and have internalized it, uh, you know, and have, have absolutely felt that my body is not right and I want to do anything that I can to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just a world of grief has come out of that. I don't have to tell you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, and, and so I, I feel like maybe I can understand, I don't know, you know, somebody else might disagree with me, but, but having been in that position of something that's part of my identity, you know, being stigmatized and at one time anyway, being a target of treatment, I feel like I get that a little Mm -hmm. bit and I get how um, undermining that is. But I I wonder a little bit, and maybe you think I'm crazy, but that whether the term obesity is just too problematic, you know, Uh it's just got, it's just so loaded with Mm -hmm. what it means to you know, in, in the common mind and the common imagination, because what, you know, what I think is absolutely, if somebody has uh, metabolic problems or risk for medical, we hundred percent, we should um, address that. That would be, we would be remiss not to, but maybe we don't have to call it obesity treatment. Maybe we don't have to call it weight loss treatment. It's very interesting that you say that Mike, because as you know, I lived in Japan for almost 12 years and the, rates of higher uh, BMI or rates of obesity are very low in Japan, but increasing. And in Japan, the Japanese healthcare system is alarmed by the increases in population weight because of the healthcare implications. And even though they're still, the rates are much, 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 much lower than in uh, the United States or most of Western um, populations. But what Japan did is focus on what they call matabo, metabolic syndrome. And they thought what the healthcare system needs to focus on are the healthcare issues. And honestly, when they first launched this program, I thought, why don't they just call it obesity? Like that's what everyone else calls it. But actually, I think it was brilliant because they were really focused on what the healthcare system really needs to focus on, which were the health implications of a certain status, of a certain clinical status. And it wasn't about what your body shape looked like. It was yeah. what are your health markers? Yeah, it's really no, interesting to me. I think it's a great, uh, it's a great way to approach it. So, would it be different in your view if the, let's just say, within the 
eating disorders world if we talked about metabolic syndrome rather so, than obesity? Yeah. What and does I think that it, mean? What is that? What would that mean? I, in terms I mean, of I think what that would mean with that, you would say to somebody like you're having these metabolic problems or metabolic risks. We want to, you know, treat those. Your body might change, but that's a side effect. You know, that's not, it's not the point of treatment is to change your body. Um, mm -hmm. You might like that side effect. You might not like that side effect, but it's, it's a side effect, you know? Now, uh -huh. like, again, there are some situations where it is the, the mass of the body or the size of the body that is the problem. And there that might have to be targeted more, but that tends to be, I think, in more sort of extreme situations. Mm -hmm. um, now, like you might say, like, that's all nice for you to say that, but come on, like we live in the real world and people just want to lose weight, you know, like people. And it, but I think it's because they're saturated in the ideology that we've, you know, that we've all grown up with and they've uh, reacted to it. In many cases, people internalize it and, you know, they've, people have drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, right. Right. Uh, so when you, you said, the, that we are, we live in a world that emphasizes thinness and promotes thinness. We, and that that has certain implications in reality. Also, we know that higher weight status BMI is associated with significant health implications, metabolic, um, and other health implications like diabetes, for example. Yeah, so are we skirting the issue by saying that weight doesn't matter? I, I don't think so. And again, I think it's, I think if, you know, weight is a, a marker, fine, it's a marker. If that's an easy way to kind of identify folks who might benefit from screening or whatever. Okay. But that's, that's all it is. It's not, you know, it's so easy for it to slip into like weight is the problem itself. Um, and that, I think that slippage is, um, has created, um, just tremendous problems and stigma and has been incredibly destructive mm -hmm. to so many people. And I feel like, I feel like we need, you know, just going back to the, um, the, my own experiences as a gay person, like we have pride month now, you know, we just had the pride March yesterday. I feel like we need body pride month. Um, mm -hmm. that's on, you know, at some point. Uh, that's even maybe more than we need LGBTQ pride at this point, because mm -hmm. uh, that's become much more accepted, mm -hmm. at least in mm -hmm. this part of the country. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, if I, when I say that, I can just hear uh, people saying, but like, uh, that's, that's a horrible idea. Like then you're, you know, you're promoting illness. And I'm, I, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying I'm, I'm promoting body acceptance. I still, I think you can be a hundred percent for health and a hundred percent for body acceptance. I don't see those as, uh, you know, uh, warring principles. Um, mm -hmm. I think all of that is health. Okay. So you're focused with this, in this big idea around language and yeah. language, how language shapes how we think about things, how we feel about things what you just inserted this idea of body acceptance, what does that language mean? That it's okay, that it's okay to have a larger rounder body, you know, and, and like, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, with that or any other body type. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a beautiful body type, like, you know, like many others, like, should you be concerned about 
health, absolutely should be concerned about your health. Should you be, you know, monitoring your, um, whatever your insulin sensitivity and your blood pressure, sure. Um, if at some point should you be getting treatment for met metabo, if you have it, sure. Um, mm -hmm. If your body changes, what about that? Well, that would be tough. Then you have to kind of deal with that, you know? Um, but that would, again, that wouldn't be the point of it. That would be something to grapple with. Um, and there could be even be a trade-off of to say like, you know, my body, it is uh, worth it to me. Like my body is enough of my identity that I'm willing to take this risk. People do that in lots of other areas of life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people like live in places where the air quality is not the best, mm -hmm. et cetera. So going back to this big idea around language and how important language is in how we describe and define what a condition is, what a disorder is, as you look ahead for the world of eating disorders, what are the conditions or what are the, where do you see this issue of language being especially critical at the moment? So the, the other example that came up for me um, recently, just in my reading um, and discussing is the, um, the whole idea of terminal anorexia, which mm -hmm. uh, has gotten a lot of attention recently. And, uh, you know, and I think that's in many ways, that's, um, that's all about that term terminal, which actually I, I looked up a little bit, uh, an article on what is terminal even like without anorexia, what is just the word, is the word terminal even well-defined? Mm -hmm. Like terminal anything? It's not. Like people mean different things by that. There's a kind of a general sense that it means you're, you're probably going to die from it. And you're near the end of your life, but um, it's not well-defined at all. But what was interesting to me in thinking about that in terms of this idea was that I think um, the folks who proposed the, the term and, you know, proposed kind of what would be criteria for that were really very aware of like that, that how we talk about things is going to impact how we think about them. And that that would really open the door to things like medical assistance and dying and stuff like that. And, and have us kind of thinking about that um, in a much more um, open way. And I think um, Angela Guarda, who wrote that very powerful uh, editorial opposing it, like absolutely understood that. And, you know, that her title was, let me see if I can find it, but it was something like the terminal anorexia cannot and should not be defined. Um, so she focused exactly on what, in my view, in the right place, which was on the term itself, with the idea that once we kind of let this term, it feels like a sort of an academic discussion. Let's just Come up with this new term and a definition for it. And again, I think I think the folks who were proposing it were doing it out of all compassion and all good reasons and wanting to make the world a better place. So I don't I don't condemn that. But I think it was all about very much about if we have this new term, it's going to really change how people think. And mm -hmm. you know, the folks who have been opposed to it have said like we don't want to change the way that we think about this. That that's dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. And like, let's slow down a little bit. And we definitely don't want to start introducing new, you know, term, terms that are going to then become a kind of shortcut to things that should not have a shortcut. Mm -hmm. And as you say, once you give that, once you define, somehow define this condition, which Angela Guarda, Dr. Guarda is saying, we should not 
define because we don't have enough information to actually right. viably define. Right. And we didn't even, as I, and I would add, like, we didn't even know what terminal means yeah. in any other context. So <laughs> let alone anorexia. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates, because as you say, the language we use shapes how we think it gives us a false sense of confidence that we know something that we don't actually know. That's, I think that's the point. You talk about this big idea of language and across the history of eating disorders, right? Defining disorders, defining bulimia nervosa. Once we describe the disorder of bulimia nervosa, discovering that we're leaving a large group out that's binge eating, but not compensating. So defining binge eating disorder. Now there in the field is this new debate of language around terminal anorexia nervosa. The way we define things and label things, right? It takes us to kind of diagnosis is a specific form of labeling theory. Absolutely. Yep. And, um, or, or labeling theory applies to the world of diagnosis in a specific way. That's so interesting that you bring that up. Mm -hmm. I took a sociology course in college about that. Yeah. Um, And I remember it's kind of an interesting and sad story. My grandmother was becoming demented at the time. And, um, but it was like really in the early stages and you couldn't quite tell. And so like, you know, she thought that my, um, you know, that my aunt was be- behave, who lived with her was behaving in strange ways. And my aunt was saying that she was behaving in strange ways. And, and I was like, I, I adored my grandmother. So I kind of wrote this whole term paper on, um, you know, dementia and labeling theory and how once you label somebody as dementia, they started. And then, which was, I thought a pretty good paper, but then it became like clear that she really was demented, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes having the right label to your point around language having the right label, having the right diagnosis can be profoundly constructive and helpful. People understand their condition differently. They can access care differently. They can remove some of the the burden of of self-blame and self-loathing by understanding that this is a phenomenon that is shared by many others. So it, it can have many and varied implications. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. As you look forward to the next generations of professionals, whether they're researchers, clinicians, and individuals with lived experience in the field of eating disorders, what might you say about how to think about this issue of language? I, th- I, mean, I think I just want to go back to that um, that qu- that sort of initial question of like what are we what are we not seeing what are we missing what 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 might we be assuming when we talk about things the way that we talk about them and we take a step back I loved your like the kind of cross cultural comparison that you made with like Japan like that's a very eye opening thing I sometimes think about remember how Kelly Vatusik back in the nineties would talk about things that sounded a lot like anorexia, like elite climbers, or like if somebody came and took away your baby and those kinds of things that, you know, that were a lot like the experience of anorexia, but without the label. And it was totally eye-opening to anybody who ever heard her, like that we could do more of that, you know, just of trying to 
trying to remember to question the labels and see what we're not think about what we're not seeing pull the curtain back on what assumptions we're making what we're not seeing yeah yeah Yeah. in terms of mentors and people who influence the way you think about things uh and the the ongoing the forward the future history of eating disorders thoughts and and you spend so much time as an educator mike in in preparing the next generation of health providers uh what do you think matters most in this experience of generation to generation learning and questioning yeah i mean i think always you know always and this is something that we're much better about than we used to be for sure but um kind of a note that we started out on is the the value of lived experience you know of really understanding um from the point of view of the person um what it is that they're experiencing and, and just really understanding how crucial how crucial that is and and it's so easy to think we understand everything as a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a physician or whatever and um you know, we, I've never not learned something. I've talked to somebody about their lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. And even that, right. When we think about language that we use and legitimizing somebody's experience, the term person with lived experience is something that is a legitimizing use of language that's that's relatively new compared yeah. to the way that the healthcare professionals would historically think about whether somebody could contribute to oh, understanding. Um, and physicians need it the most, I think, having traditionally been at the top of the hierarchy. Um, yeah. 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 So uh, any last comments, thoughts that you'd like to share as we wrap up today? Not really, other than that, it was such a, it was so fun to talk about this with, you know, with you in particular, because like, I, I feel like we together were able to um, generate some interesting ideas, maybe. Great. Um, so I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Mike. You've contributed so much with your generous spirit and your capacity to continue to look and question and step back and evolve your thinking. and. I know from my own personal experience of learning with you and from you and from all of the students who have studied with you that you have so much to share and have really helped us all grow in the field. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.